So our message today is called Broken Pieces. It is December 15th, 2013. This ball of dirt is hurling around the sun at a frightening pace. Before we know it, 2014 will be here. And for those of you that were alive and adults during the Y2K madness 14 years ago, it's a surprise to some we're still here. You know, the Mayan calendar turned out to be false. Harold Camping turned out to be false. All of the crazy internet conspirators turned out to be false, but the word of God is never false. We need to be very careful then to recognize the difference between what the word says and what people say the word says. It discredits God when people misquote his word, when they misapply his word. Today, we're going to pray that God will help us rightly apply his word to our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes. Lord, that having put us in right standing with you by the blood of your son, the spirit of holiness would come upon us, that your Ruach HaKodesh would breathe into us the meaning of these scriptures, that we would walk away forever changed. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen and amen. So let's pick up in Matthew 14. It says, at the time of Herod the Tetrarch, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. Before we deal with the rest of this chapter, we've now introduced some players. And we probably need to talk about the characters so that you'll understand where I'm going with the message that God gave me this morning. Let's start with John the Baptist. Keep your finger in Matthew 14 and go to Luke 7. Say there when you are there. Those of you that have Bibles, don't wait on the screens. You go in your Bible. If you were not fortunate enough to bring a sword today, understand you are in warfare and you should not be unarmed. You need to hide it in your heart. You need to carry it in your hands. You need to keep it in your car. You're in a life and death struggle. And I don't like to be disarmed when in a life and death struggle. How many of you would like to fight with a lion with your bare hands? Good news is you don't have to. God provided a sword and he's not really a lion. He just acts like one. Reinhard Bunker said he's a chihuahua with a megaphone. In the seventh chapter of Luke, picking up in the 24th verse, we hear Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? Now, those of you that have not heard us teach on this subject before or are not really read in the first century literature around the Bible, that might not make a lot of sense to you. When speaking about John the Baptist, Jesus asked the people, what did you go out in the desert to see? Did you go out to see a reed swayed in the wind? And he didn't wait for their response. He said, if not, what did you go out to see? That implies that the correct answer was no, we did not go out to see a reed swayed in the wind. You know, if I told you today a story about a little teapot, short and stout, what would you tell me is next? Here's my handle, here is my spout. When I get all steamed up, I just... Oh, come on, guys, don't act like you don't know it. This is a place where you can turn to your neighbor and say, it's going to be okay, you can talk in church. Tell them again, I don't think they got it. 
when I get all steamed up, I just... In the first century, they taught, based on Isaiah 61, among other scriptures, a parable about an oak tree. And all Jewish children heard the parable about the oak tree. You grew up with it to the point where it was just like, how many of you sang the little teapot song this week? How many of you sang it once this year? Many of you hadn't sung it in decades, and yet you know the song, don't you? You know the rhythm and meter to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Are you impressed with my singing voice, Michael? That's amazing, isn't it? Former life as a nightclub singer, right? Listen, it was so ingrained in them that they knew what Jesus was saying simply from mentioning the words, reed swaying in the wind. Because the parable went something like this. A reed is a survivor. When the strong storms come, it sways in whatever direction it needs to sway. It bends, but it never breaks. And at first to the Jewish children, the reed, it looks like a success. But in the end, they learned to admire the oak tree that was planted by God, that in season and out of season stands strong. And when the mighty winds come, it may snap and give its life, but it gave its life without ever being moved off of the purposes of God. The Jews were learning something from childhood. We can accommodate ourselves and acclimate ourselves to almost anything, but the consequence is while we survive, we do not do what God called us to do. The oak tree is unaccommodating. It doesn't acclimatize itself to anywhere other than where God planted it, but it may cost it its life. In context, what did you go out to see in John? Did you go out to see a compromising man who would say whatever he needed to say just to get along? Or did you go out to see an oak of righteousness? I told you to keep your finger in Matthew 14. How many of you got more than one finger? It's okay to speak in church. How many of you got more than one finger? Those of you that got at least two fingers, put one of them in Matthew 14. Put the other in Luke 7. And now use your left hand to find Isaiah 61. I love the Word of God. And before this day is over, you are going to love it too. In Isaiah 61... If I'm not mistaken, a Jewish carpenter made this famous about 750 years after it was first written. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Who's the good news for? The The poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Who gets bound up? To proclaim freedom to the captives. Who gets set free? And release from darkness the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. How do you get the beauty? you got to wear the ashes. If your dreams are not burned up, if your life has gone pretty well the day you, the way you designed it, well, then you're probably the Lord of your own life and living in a false sense of security. But for those of us that have hit that wall of righteousness and been broken by it, 
those of us who have run our lives into the righteous standard of Jesus, we realize that our lives are but ashes and we're asking him to give us something beautiful. The oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. Back to Luke 7. When we're speaking about John the Baptist, he is an oak of righteousness. His job was to take prisoners and set them free. His job was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but also a day of vengeance of our God. He was to prepare the people of Israel. In the seventh chapter of Luke, picking back up in our story somewhere around verse 25, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. Their kings are ready. They have no need of a kingdom that is coming because they've received their kingdom now. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you in more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Keep your finger here and turn with me to the prophet of Malachi. When you reach Malachi, find the second chapter and then holler out, I'm there. Wow, your Bibles are faster than mine. In the second chapter of Malachi, pick up with me in the 17th verse. John was a man who held up the standard. This is the environment that he was facing. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? Do we not live in a day where people speak of men they know are doing evil and say, oh, well, to each their own. They're probably a pretty good old guy. And why do men do it? Because they don't want anybody to take too close of a look at their life. If the crowd is large enough, then the preacher must be anointed. If the crowds are enthusiastic enough, then the singer must be singing of the anointed words of God. But what if it's not a popularity contest? What if we live in an environment where what is popular is actually evil? Did you hear who made the man of the year? It wasn't Jesus Christ. The man of the year. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. The third chapter and first verse. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of his covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like the refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. How important was John the Baptist? He was to be the forerunner of the Christ. He would show up in an environment where people did not call good, good. 
They spoke of things that were evil as though it was good. But he would be a refining agent. Something that took out impurities. Something that burned away the dross. He would prepare people to receive the kingdom of God. When you notice a man is falling in love with the Lord for the first time, when he's being drawn by the Spirit of God, the singular first thing that happens is what is evil becomes utterly detestable to him. He no longer sees it as vague shades of gray. He no longer says, well, to each his own. For the first time in his life, he's offended at what offends the Lord. I would say salvation without that step is not salvation at all. It might be adherence to some religious standard. You could get your USDA stamp as a Christian, but you never knew what it was to have God's heart because his heart is utterly offended with things that men praise and the things that men detest is the very heart of God if you're detested in here today then you can take a little pride in that the world may hate you but the living God loves you he loves you he's not interested in a popularity contest because if he says it's right then it's right Our God does not have righteousness. He is righteousness. There's one more thing I hoped you'd get from Luke 7. Turn back there with me and look at the 29th verse. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Did John do a good job then? Because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Jeremiah, the fifth chapter, and say there when you were there. If you're used to three points in a poem, you're going to be sorely disappointed this morning. I don't believe in a water gun that is the word of God. I believe in a machine gun that is the word of God. The fifth chapter and fifth fifth verse speaks to these leaders. So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest will attack them. A wolf from the desert will ravage them. A leopard will lie in wait near their towns to tear to pieces any who venture out. For their rebellion is great and their backslidings many. They go on to say that even those who know the law have hired men with lying pens to write about it. Who rejects God's purpose? Is it those Who don't know the word? No, in this case, they were they who did know the word but didn't like what it said. Very few people in this country of ours are going to tell you that the word of God is a lie. Instead, they simply lie about the word of God. It's easier. We can say, no, we believe Jesus is Lord, but we don't act as if he's Lord. We can say that his Bible is the word of God, but then we don't do what it actually says. We lie about what it says. John was addressing just such a people as this. Have you ever felt isolated in the work of God? I mean, ever looked out like Elijah and said, Lord, is there anybody else who even cares? 
Real men of God everywhere do it. The good news is there are real men of God everywhere. They're everywhere. The enemy works full time to make you feel isolated. After all, his favorite altar call is everybody's doing it. He loves to trick people into that lie. John the Baptist had a, had a purpose. Unlike most human beings, his was special. Let us then go back to Matthew 14. Are you keeping up with me so far? In Matthew 14, now that you know who John the Baptist is, who is the other man? At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. Herod the Tetrarch. I put a chart in your bulletin today and I want to put it on the screen for you now. I couldn't tell you enough about the Herodian family. I think last week when we talked about Shemash, I told you about the Hasmonean dynasty in Judas Maccabeus. Do you all remember that? Well, the man that replaced the Hasmonean dynasty's name was Herod the Great. And while history calls him Herod the Great, I think he is Herod the Great Sinner. Herod built a bunch of great things, and people love that. They love to be able to go and see buildings that have endured forever. Herod built Masada. Herod renovated Zerubbabel's temple. Herod built Caesarea Maritime in honor of the Roman gods. Herod did a great many things. Of course, if you were Herod's children, as Herod the Tetrarch was a child of Herod the Great, life probably looked different for you than life looks for us today. Herod the Great had ten wives. His favorite wife, a one woman named Maryam, Miriam, Maryam, somewhere like that, she, uh, she bore him sons. And because he suspected her, didn't have proof, suspected her unfaithfulness, he killed her and her sons. That was his favorite wife, favorite of ten. How do you think the other nine fared? Every time Herod went out to battle, he left orders for someone with a sword to put the royal family's wives to death in case he didn't return, if he didn't return. It seems that he didn't want anybody else to have his wives. So Herod the Great had a son named Aristobulus and a son named Archelaus and another named Herod Antipas that the Bible calls Herod the Tetrarch, and then he had Philip. Now Aristobulus had a daughter. You see this on the chart? Herodias, that is Aristobulus's daughter. What is that to Herod Antipas then? His niece. And it turns out that Philip married Herodias. Philip married his niece. I saw a Facebook announcement the other day that I just had a, a, a good chuckle over. Man announced his plans to be married. And in the comment section, everybody was very excited for him. And, oh, we're, we're thrilled to death at the news for the wedding. The last comment that I read said, I am so proud of my two cousins for a marriage announcement. I thought, well, it is Louisiana. Herod the Great was a descendant of Esau. They call him Idumean. Idumean is a fancy way to say a descendant of Esau, and he was much like Esau. Herod the Great 
preferred what he preferred. And he didn't care who it hurt. And so he invested that kind of attitude in his sons. What is Herod the Great most famous for? He killed all of the children around the time of Jesus. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. A horror that the world had not known since a Pharaoh in Egypt met the backside of God's ten plagues. A wicked human being. Herod the Tetrarch was simply one of four, which is what Tetrarch means. And he was put in Israel to rule. His daddy had been a friend of Mark Antony. Y'all remember Mark Antony? Mark Antony and Cleopatra? Mark Antony had suggested that Herod the Great would rule. And they gave him a small governorship. But it turns out that at 25 years old, Herod the Great was so crafty that he got recommended to Caesar Augustus. This is the Caesar who's in power when Jesus is born. The Caesar whose name was worshipped as the Son of God with 12 days of Advent in December. His birthday was December 25th, but we won't go into that today lest all of you get mad at me. Let us just say this. The apples don't fall far from the tree. And these four boys were wicked beyond belief. One, Philip, married Herodias, his niece. And Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, was jealous for his own niece. So he stole her from his brother. Wow. Keeping it in the family, huh? And after stealing her from his brother, you're about to read... He was interested in her daughter. The Bible doesn't record her name, but Josephus did. Her name was Salome. And apparently, Herod Antipas, called Herod the Tetrarch, was not just jealous for his brother's wife, who happened to be his niece. He was also interested in her teenage daughter. Can you say wickedness knows no bounds? Sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. You should remember that when you dive off into it in private. When men have no restraints, they perish because they cast off God's vision for their lives. The devil drags people away from fellowships to put them to death. He doesn't do it in our midst. Isolation and sin breed perversion. They breed everything that could be wrong. The only thing that causes it to happen faster. The petri dish in which sin grows is absolute power. And these men felt that they had the power to do anything that they wanted. Augustus Caesar once said about Herod the Tetrarch, it is better to be Herod's dog than his son's. Because the Herods had a habit of killing the sons they thought were a threat to them, but their dogs they kept close. So then we know about John the Baptist, the righteous standard, and we know about the setting with which he's having to deal. I mean, after all, Herod the Tetrarch is in power. Let us pick back up with our story in Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. You know, one of the neat things is while this man misidentifies Jesus, 
While he thinks that possibly Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead, he is also acknowledging that our King Jesus had miraculous powers at work in him. You know, when even the most wicked rulers on the planet cannot help but say, the miraculous is at work in the church, that is a day of confrontation that I would welcome. All that the people of God were clearly identified as miraculous. Why has the devil worked so hard to rob the church of its power? Because if we are not supernatural, then there is no distinction between us and the lost. People treat religions like dietary choices. Each one thinks theirs is better than the next person's until they switch diets. The living God is not like that. He's not one choice among many. He creates in you sonship. And as many as believe on him, he gives the right to become sons, not to become believing adherents, to become sons. Men with his characteristics, little chips off of the bigger block. Is our God miraculous? Then his people should be miraculous. In John Jesus literally said, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. And the church for almost 2,000 years has hidden its head in the sand from that statement and said, believe me, even though I do not do what he does. I say, let's pick a fight with the devil. Let's stand up and pray for every sick person and believe that our God is able to heal them. Let's go to every place that we can find an orphan and adopt them. Let's go to every place where they're hungry and let's feed them. And let's show the world that we are sons of the living God. Consider the alternative. We hide in our pews. We duck under our hymnals. And the world goes to hell in a handbasket while we say that we sit on our salvation. I'm not comfortable with that idea. How many times have you heard the problem is organized religion? Oh, I've heard it. I've heard it from my own relatives as they sit on the prophetic bar stools in front of the bartenders that are their pastors. And I have the same charge to you as I have to them. Then stand up and be different. Your church is what you make it. And if all you care about is showing up on a Sunday and having your feelings padded, then that's all you'll ever get out of it. But you probably won't like me at the end of the day. If, however, you show up here and believe that you're being trained in righteousness to go perform out there the very works that you've practiced in here, if you believe that you can do the greater works Jesus spoke of, then we have a shot at changing the world. I believe that this starts with a single life that is set on fire for God and like yeast spreading through the whole loaf. The people around you cannot help but be affected by you. And the nations surrounding you cannot help but be touched by you. I'm telling you that the supernatural power of God is contagious. And it's contagious because the world is yearning for it. Oh my now Herod had arrested, past tense, had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. You love how honest the Bible is. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. You have no idea what a polite translation that is. Leviticus 18 in the 16th verse also tells us it is not 
lawful for you to take your brother's wife. That would be a chance for you to shame him and dishonor her. So what happens when a man who claims to be the king of the Jews does not live by the law of the Jews? Is he then a king? You may understand now why Jesus answered Pilate but did not answer Herod when he stood before him. A man stood before him as an imposter. Jesus was the king of the Jews. And Herod was simply a puppet of Rome. But this is a great question for the church today. Are we the world's puppet with religious titles and no power? Having a form of godliness but denying its power? Or are we the sons of God ready to liberate the earth from injustice? I'm going to choose the latter and not the former. I'm going to invite you to do the same with me. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him. It's not enough for those that wear religious titles to simply stand against you. They want you bound. You're dangerous. You're the problem. Because you're real. And you represent a change to this world system. As some of my family members told me when I got born again, we've been Christians all of our lives. While we're having our abortions, our affairs, our multiple marriages, all of those things, we've been Christians all our lives. Don't go getting all fanatical on us. Guys, fanatical simply means you love Jesus more than they do. And if you're not fanatical, then I don't think you're going to make up the kingdom. Because the men who loved him then gave their lives for him then. I think you're beginning to see that none of us come from noble stock. We all come from the same disease stock. How then can God use men who come from such treacherous backgrounds? He must thoroughly change their character. Have you been changed by the power of God as you stand in here today? Herod wanted to kill John, but was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, Josephus calls her Salome, danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. I don't want to preach on this very long. We're going to give you a five-second warning. Young ladies, please don't let your bodies be an enticement to get the people of God killed. Don't do it. You don't have to participate in it. You don't have to wear what they wear. You don't have to buy what they buy. And if the only thing in style is something that you would not be comfortable wearing in the throne room of God, then buy something, dear God, that is out of style. The people of God do not have to be ugly. We do not have to refuse makeup or wear burlap sacks. But we do have to be modest. And we do have to adorn ourselves with a quiet and beautiful, gentle spirit. We have to. Guys, we want so badly for our children to be accepted. And I say accepted by who? God or the world? You can rarely have both. I happen to believe that you can be beautiful while wearing jeans bought at Walmart. You can say that one more time. There we go. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and it pleased Herod so much that he clicked on it twice. It went viral, you know. 
that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. What does the world want? They want the head of anyone that threatens their comfortable sin on a stick. Makes you wonder whether John the Baptist could have ever been time's man of the year. I suspect he would not have been nominated for such a title. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. What did Jesus think of John the Baptist? Nobody's ever been born that was any greater. What was John the Baptist to Jesus? The Gospel of Luke makes it clear that they were cousins. What is John the Baptist to Jesus? They were only six months apart. What is John the Baptist to Jesus? They were both born and announced by angels. What is John the Baptist to Jesus? John the Baptist was of priestly descent, a miraculous birth. What is John the Baptist to Jesus? A co-worker who came to prepare his way. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that a request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. What happens when men value their oaths to each other more than they value their oath to God? I've watched more people's lives go to hell in a handbasket because they neglected their oath to a God they can't see and kept an oath they never should have made to someone that they could see. They made a commitment that was sin when they made it and simply couldn't repent because it was their commitment, you know? Watch two people that claim to be married walk out of a house filled with righteousness, follow each other into drug addiction because, you know, that's my man. Yeah, well, what about your commitment to the living God? You can't get your commitment right to God. You'll never keep your commitment to man. I can assure you that. If you can't love a God that you can't see, you'll never love a man that you can. And hear me, young ladies. If he doesn't love the Lord more than he loves you, then you will be a disposable interest to him. It's just a matter of time. Someone's dancing will please him more. Jen, say that's a hard word. She was going to tell me sooner or later I figured I'd take my beating now. <laughs> Actually, I love my wife's honesty. I was driving home last week and there were seven people in the car and I said, y'all can go ahead, you can tell me now. And one by one, they gave me a little sandwich. It was a serious correction in the middle of two praises and it's all right, I know how to do it too. Listen, very often, the singular best thing for us is the last thing that we want to eat. Point in case, broccoli. Asparagus. Green, leafy, anything. Can you take that thing and shove it into a tasteless, odorless pill and let me swallow it? I want you to think on Jesus for a moment. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. 
How many of you have known Matthew and I for a few years? Raise your hands. What if they came and told Matthew that in Mexico my head was cut off and he and Michael went and got my body? How would you expect Matthew to feel the next day? Hmm? I mean, is he throwing an internet party and closing down the church and putting up gas pumps? What's he doing? Wouldn't you think that this would be a difficult time in his life? You ever think that it was hard for Jesus to be Jesus? We don't think about that very often. And we don't think about it very often because we don't think of him in light of his humanity. You know, 2,000 years ago on the other side of the cross, when they looked at Jesus, they saw a human being and struggled to see him as God. 2,000 years after the cross, we look at Jesus as God and struggle to see him as a human being. And friends, he's both. Do you really think it didn't hurt him when his friend died? I mean, when Lazarus died, who was also his friend, what does it say that Jesus did? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. He wept. Why? He was going to heal him. He was going to raise him. It was going to be an outstanding miracle that the Jews of Judea would say, we surely have to kill him now. Why did he weep? I'm sure he saw the effects on the people. He saw the women that he loved mourning. He saw how dismayed his disciples were. It hurt him to see the effects of death. He was going to crush it. He's going to remove it. And yet the reality is that now it leaves its mark. And have you ever been to a funeral of somebody you knew that you knew that you knew was a believer? It's joy mixed with pain, is it not? Joy, they're dancing in glory, pain. They're not here with you now and you see their loved ones hurting. I preached my own father's funeral. It was a great joy of my life. I know something of what it is to smile in faith when your heart wants to tremble and cry. Think on Jesus in those terms for just a minute. Let's not think about him as 8-pound, 11-ounce, golden diaper baby Jesus. Let's not think about him as the son of Mary asking for her permission, but for just a minute. Could we think about Jesus in his humanity and how he must have felt? When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Can you think of very many times in Jesus' ministry when he was trying to get away from people? I mean, he's drawing away to a private and solitary place. Is it hard to imagine then that he was mourning? Hard to imagine that he was broken in his heart? When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Did they care about what Jesus needed? So you have a selfish people following Jesus for selfish reasons. If you were Jesus, 
and you're grieving, how would you have treated these people? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed the sick. This says a mouthful about the heart of God, friends. At a time period that Jesus had every reason to say, not today, business is closed. At a time period we had every reason to find fault with those who were following him. I mean, at another occasion he said, you follow me because you get your fill of fishes and loaves. But he didn't say it on this occasion. You know why? Our Lord loves to have compassion on people. In the seventh chapter of Micah, Keep your finger in Matthew. Micah 7. Look at the 18th verse. Say there when you're there. We find something about God. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. What does God do? He delights to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The living God is able to take your failure and trample it under His feet. He's not looking to judge you. He delights in showing compassion to you. At his weakest moment as a human being, this is what comes out of him, is compassion. And friends, he's glorified in the heavenlies now. The fullness of the Godhead. If when he was hungry and tired, and grieving. This is what came out of him. What do you think he's longing to do for you now? As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. This is largely what the church has done. We're sure Jesus has compassion on you, but as for us, we say go home. Service is over, you know. We have to have our next group of cattle in here. Throw some change in the box on your way out. Jesus is not like that. He wants not to know your confession of faith. He wants to know the details of your life. And he wants to be involved in it. He actually cares. He actually cares about you as a human being, not a number or a baptism statistic. He cares. He's looking for the chance to have compassion on you. Did you know that the Proverbs tell us something? The Proverbs tell us in the third chapter in 28th verse that you cannot tell your neighbor... Do not say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow when you have it with you now. If the Proverbs which these men had memorized 
taught them not to send people away if they could help them today, then they must not have known they could help them. See, this is largely where the church is. It has no idea who it is or what it's called to do. It's drawn a crowd because that's what we think we're supposed to do. It's gathered resources because if you get enough resources, surely it'll result in salvation, but it doesn't. It results in bigger building salaries and apostolic escalades. It results in televangelists that can afford the finest secretaries and they enjoy them. But a heart for the people, a heart that cares about a 13-year-old boy. You look 13. A heart that literally wants to get involved in the rest of humanity. Now that's something that Jesus had. I'd like to tell you that that's not the only thing the Proverbs say. Sometime the King of Kings is going to address us about Proverbs 21, 12. I quoted that scripture wrong. Not 21, 12. Give me one second. Psalms and Proverbs. 13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. What does the Bible say then if we ignore the needs of others? Our needs will be ignored. I said, but Eric, my mortgage is paid. I got cars. I got clothes. My needs are not ignored. Aren't they? You can have all of those things. And what did he say to Laodicea? You think you're rich and you're poor. I need to counsel you to buy salve for your eyes. You need gold refined in the fire. You know, when a man becomes convinced that God himself saved him for a purpose, when he becomes convinced that he is a member of the body of Christ and therefore God's hands on the earth, and he actually believes that the Lord will send him to do his will, that becomes a very dangerous thing to the enemy. Because now you have somebody who is motivated by God's heart and intends to take action. The church studies God's heart all of the time, but intends to take no action. How many of you believe it's a right thing to talk? Don't, no, God, don't, don't show me your hands. I close my eyes. You can say it out loud. How many of you believe it's a right thing to tithe? I think it's a sin for a church to ask you to tithe and it doesn't do anything godly with the money that you give it. I don't think Roman columns in a church are worth their price. Somewhere in this, we have to rekindle a heart for what God's heart is for. Can you say that we're broken? Can you say that we're broken pieces? I'd like you to consider something. Listen to what these disciples say. They say in Matthew 14, verse 15, As evening approached, 
the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only. Doesn't matter what comes after that. I've taught a thousand messages on five loaves and two fishes. They thought that's all they had. Friends, if all you have are the resources in your bank account, then you're poor indeed. This world can be divided into those that feel like they have the power of God and those who only have what they have. Do they only have five loaves and two fishes or are they standing with God manifest? Do they only have five loaves and two fishes? Or have they been called for a divine mandate? If this ministry operated on what it had, we would have never gotten out of the first year, much less been to 23 nations. Missions on five continents is not possible if you only have what you have. How many of you know God has fuzzy math? You engineers are not going to like this. God says one and one and one is not three, it's one. He says five plus two may equal seven, but when I'm done with it, it's 12. God has got fuzzy math. So do the politicians, but it's always in their favor with them. With God, it's in your favor. We are cutting taxes, we are. Don't notice that more's coming out of your check. Don't believe your lying eyes, right? Saints, the disciples saw themselves as only having five loaves and two fish. So they came to the conclusion that we should send these people away. One of the most daunting things as a Christian is to stand up and boldly proclaim God's truth and then you feel like you don't have when people come to ask for what you just promised them. Who has it? God does, and he's with us. He's inside of us. Our job is to arrange the introduction. Our job is to stand there and pray until we see it come about. All the storehouses of heaven are at the disposal of the saints. We are not poor. If you can twist that into 365 confessions of faith, then you need to pick one of the other 12 churches on this road. We're not prosperity gospel, and I don't want your money. I want you to be so full of faith that nothing hinders what God called you to do. I believe that the living God is waiting to take a broken people and put the world back together with them. Which brings us to our point today. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Five just happens to be the number of grace in the Bible. Two is an international number of covenant, but in the Bible it is always covenant. When you add five and two together, you get seven. It is a perfect, grace-filled covenant that he's about to teach on. 
Can I tell you with Jesus he's capable of chewing gum and walking at the same time? He's capable of feeding thousands of people, teaching his disciples, and laying down a message that teaches all mankind forever. Jesus is broken hearted in this message. Jesus just wanted to get away for a while, but Jesus always did what the Father told him to do. He never called in sick. He never stayed home. He never turned away a hungry person. Bring them here to me. Friends, I may not have what I need, but I know the one who does. And I'm going to tell you the truth. He's deposited in me his eternal spirit, his everlasting Holy Ghost. The spirit of the living God is enough. But if you think you don't have enough, then arrange an introduction because he always has enough. He is able to meet the people's needs. And you're his hands and feet. How is he going to meet their needs? He does it through us. I'm not talking about a humanitarian gospel or social justice. I'm not talking about just feeding the world for the sake of feeding the world. I'm talking about arranging an introduction. Our God will allow there to be a famine so that he can send a man like Elijah to Zarephath for one window. Because the living God cares about a single life. He'll bring you at just the time her son dies so that you can bring him back to life. The living God's invested an awful lot in you. He killed his son so that you could be right. What are you doing with it, saints? What are you doing with the righteousness that you've been credited? Well, you've gotten into a works-based gospel. Can I tell you, I think most theologians are idiots. They can be scholars and they're absolute fools for their intelligence. If you don't have a works-based gospel, what do you have? A gospel without works that's dead. Faith expressed in your deeds moves the heart of God. You could never earn righteousness. He's given it to you, but you have to walk in what he's given you. You know, Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. He called it a right strawy book. It went counterintuitive to his revelation, saved by faith alone. Well, God bless him, Martin had a bunch of good things, but he probably drank too many beers the night before because God's credit of righteousness was given to you so you would be free to do good works. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. They answered, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. I want you to know that the very first thing God does in any human being's life is he directs you where to sit and he groups you into groups of 50 and 100. He puts you in the fellowship that is meant to sustain you. You cannot continue to go your own way doing what you want to do and ask God to bless it. That makes him your genie, not your God. Rub his belly and you get a few good luck. 
But when you stand where he tells you to stand and sit where he tells you to sit, it's the first sign that he's bringing order to your life and you're no longer in charge. I want to ask you today, are you in charge of your life? Do you go where you want to go and do as you please? Do you pride yourself that nobody can tell you what to do? It is an antichrist spirit. I don't care whether it lives in the body of someone who says they're a believer or not. It is of the devil. The children of the living God are led by his spirit. Led. We don't need purpose-driven anything. His spirit will lead us into all good things. You don't have to be driven. You don't have to be beaten. You don't have to be threatened. Our God delights in giving you compassion. And you love him and want to walk as he walks. Unless you never met him, then you don't know what he's like and you have to rely on some lying den of liars to tell you. Good thing he gave you a book that tells all about his character. You don't have to trust me. All you have to do is trust the best-selling book of all time. A couple hundred thousand an hour are distributed around the world. And everywhere else, when people get Bibles, they go to bed with them. They sleep with them. They hold them. They love them. They hug them. They kiss them. Here, we throw them on the back seat of our car for next week. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. And what did he do? There is never a time in the Bible where Jesus did not break bread before he multiplied it, ever. The living God only supernaturally works in broken vessels. You need the power of God, friends, and you can't have it while you think everything is just fine in you. Because when he does something amazing, you'll have a fine way of taking his credit. But when you are a broken vessel, maybe you didn't agree with your seating assignment. Maybe you didn't agree with those who were seated next to you and it crushes everything in you to even be numbered with them. But you do it anyway. Oh, now he's found somebody he can use. See, new Christians, according to Watchman Nee, they're long on activity and short on obedience. They do everything they like and they refuse everything they dislike. And for this reason, they never mature. His lordship is exemplified in every decision that is made that you would not have made. And it's painful and it hurts, but you do it because you believe that if you're broken, he's glorified in you. Why do we have so many miracles in so many other places? Well, I've been. Some of you are there. You've been there when we together cast out demons. When we together prayed for old men to walk again, and they did. Been there when we prayed and watched people get out of wheelchairs and walk. And do you know what they had in common? They were broken and devoid of hope. And God had compassion on them. And there was a people there who didn't say, send them away at somebody else's job. Is your life your own today? 
See, you promised it to Jesus when you said you were born again. But that brings us to another subject. How many people say they're born again and they're not born again? You know, if you say you're born but you're not breathing, if you say you're born but there's nothing new, Jesus breaks everything that he uses. The perfect prince of peace never used anything that he didn't break. Put Psalm 51, 17 on the screen. He breaks your heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. If your heart's not broken, then how does he dwell in it? But when a heart is there and says, Lord, I've ruined everything in my life. Nothing good in here unless you create it. And if you create it, then you're going to have to help me maintain it. Oh, that's a heart he can use. That's a heart he can pour unlimited power into. Because it will never steal the glory for itself. It knows what it is. He breaks hearts. How about Daniel 12 in verse 7? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left towards heaven. Apparently the angels are allowed to raise their hands in church. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times and a half time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. What a strange verse. You don't make very many bumper stickers out of that one. You never see bumper stickers out of the seventh chapter of Daniel either because it says exactly the same thing. When does God come and save his people? When does he appear on the scene to destroy the Antichrist? When the power of the holy people, their strength has been broken. God wants a broken heart. God wants a broken strength. Because if your heart is broken and your strength is broken, there's nobody to rely on but him. Maybe that's why he asked you to feed four or five, six thousand people and it's just you standing there. It would be so far beyond the vision that's in your heart, so far beyond the ability of your arm that you could only turn to him who is standing there and say, how are we going to do it? They had to be taught and so do we. Guys, if we don't get to the end of our resources, don't get to the end of our rope, you never find the beginning of God's supernatural power. So in this ministry, we live on that edge weekly. I seldom tell you what is going on in the church from a financial perspective because so many of you are so kind-hearted that it breaks your heart. And what you don't know is we're used to living like this because it makes us acquainted with God's strength. And we don't get callous to it, neither should you, nor do we go to bed without hope each night. We have learned to trust our God. <laughs> if you start off a month, thousands of dollars in the hole, then every month you get to see Elijah's oil multiplied out. But you better make sure that you're doing God's work with Elijah's oil. 
or else you have no confidence in the next month. Are you beginning to see why churches have retirement plans and big savings accounts and boards of trustees and elders and all to make sure that the church is always in a safe, good position? Well, if you don't have confidence that you're doing what God called you to do, then you have to figure out how to store your acorns. I've thrown everything that I have into the lap of the Lord, and he has never let me down. How many loaves did they have? How many fish did they have? Five loaves and two fishes. I have one more scripture to read you out of Amos. Not, not just one. I, somebody told me I lied last week. One scripture out of Amos. Amos 9, 11. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair it, its broken places. Restore its ruin and build it as it used to be. David's tabernacle was made of many colors of skins. They took sea cows. They, they took cows. They took all kinds of animals so that when you looked at the tent, it represented humanity. And then they brought the ark of the living God into that tabernacle. And David himself appointed musicians 24 hours a day. And they carried it up to Zion so that the whole world could pass by and see the tabernacle of God filled with praises. The apostles in the 15th chapter of Acts said that we were in the days we were rebuilding David's fallen tabernacle. There's a draft going on. It's pulling men and women from every nation and it's putting the ark of the living God inside their tabernacle so that the whole world might know. But to rebuild a tent, it had to first be fallen. To rebuild the tent and repair it, it had to have broken places mended. Saints, until you can get honest in the presence of the Lord and say, here is my problem, then how does he mend it? How does he repair it? What's the bumper sticker? Life's good. Business is great. People are terrific. They forgot the last line. I'm a liar. None of that's true. It never has been true. But we kind of feel like if we say, hey, by the way, when's the last time, Nolan, somebody walked up to you and said, hey, man, how you doing? Good. When's the last time anybody said anything other than that? No. We lie to each other all of the time. We don't want to be broken pieces. In the prayer meeting this morning, I was very honest with our people because I love them and they're my family. So I told them the truth. So I'm a bit busted up, a bit tired, a bit visionless, a bit disappointed, a bit scared, all of those things. Now, most pastors can't do that. Their people would never come back because they want a Ken and a Barbie. Disappointed, I know. They want, well, we got the Barbie. They got the Ken and the Barbie, and they want the image of perfection. And they're okay with the distance between the pulpit and the pew because it allows them to keep their illusion of grandeur, their demagogue status. And then they can point at them when they fall and say, we never knew. The Bible calls us to live in union with each other. So 
I began to tell them. And you know what happened in that prayer meeting? Spirit of God descended upon the weakness of the people. He had compassion on the broken pieces. And he began to multiply them. He began to speak life and not a single person left the room without a prophecy of encouragement about their lives. And even the feeble, intrepid pastor received a touch from heaven. And so I have something to give you today. You know, I'm sure it would be nice for us all to preach out of our strength. But if we preach out of our weakness, we might learn what God has to say. I'm here to tell you that he only uses broken pieces because he can rebuild them and multiply them. He will put you in order and he will break you. Being put in order includes being broken. In the 20th chapter of Luke, look at verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, What then is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. By the way, before you see that verse, who's the capstone? Jesus. Follow that line of thought. Everyone who falls on that stone, i.e. Jesus, will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. We have a chance now to bring our lives into contact with the righteous rock that is Jesus and it will shatter your world so that he can put it back together. If you refuse to come to him, then there is a day when suddenly he will fall on you and you're crushed beyond recovery. That's the meaning of this scripture. I, for one, have been broken to pieces by him. And because of that, I see beautiful multiplications. He puts us in order, he breaks us, and then he gives us to the people. In Matthew 14, let us finish our story. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were... Snickers is not what satisfies you, friends. You know, in almost every country in the world, I could find a Coca-Cola and a Snickers. But in the most Christianized countries in the world, I often have not found Christians. Saints, the world is dying to find people who were honest enough before the Lord to be broken so they could be filled with Him. And the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. They were broken when they were handed out and they were broken when they were picked up, but there was more of them in the end than the beginning. Yeah. Saints, you want a recipe for success in the Christian world? Always be repenting. When you are broken before him, he will do more with you than if you were put together whole. And when it's all done and said, said and done, there'll be more of you in the end than there was in the beginning. But it's just more broken pieces. It's just more broken pieces. You can fight to say that you have it together now. 
power of God working right in your life? You know what kept me from getting baptized in the Holy Ghost for a good two months? Jesus had just saved me. How could you say I needed something else? I didn't know every day of my life I would need more. I was scared to death to be viewed as inadequate. Scared to death to be viewed as in need. What keeps you from confessing sin? What keeps you from asking for help? Isn't it that you're scared to be viewed as you really are and God already sees you? Isn't it? Isn't it that we would really like people to see us as a little better off than we actually are, a little holier than we actually are, a little bigger man of God than we actually are? It's when we're willing to be broken before Him that He can do so much with us. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's dangerous when He does. It's dangerous because those broken pieces try to cling together in a way that is maybe some kind of Frankenstein, but it says, look what we did. And God knew it. He said, when I bring you into a land and you got your own houses and walled cities, don't say my own arm did this. Because he knew that that's exactly what all human beings would do. So he loves us enough to break us to pieces over and over and over and over. And it's for our benefit. 